Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I think I've probably seen more of you this week than the Baroness has. Whereas we've done about eight <laughs> has podcasts been together. It has been mentioned, Kevin. Yeah, I mean, and we've, we spent a lovely evening in <laughs> in Hastings. Um, and we just, well, just an hour ago, we spent a lovely um, morning with one of our special interview pods, uh, interview pods, yeah, it's an interview pod, isn't it? It's, it's an interview and it's on a podcast. And it was an interview with Sanjay Bandari, who's the chair of Kick It Out. And as ever, Kieran, we tried to concentrate on financial issues. And as ever, it wandered all over the place. But it was a fascinating interview. And this is what Sanjay had to say. Sanjay, thank you so much for joining us there this morning. Can we start with our usual opener can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career how you came to be involved with kick it out and the big question of course which football team do you support okay i'll do the i'll do the football team last and thank you for inviting me on great to be talking to you this morning uh how did i get involved really long circuitous route um my i won't give you the full 30 year career history but i started my career as a lawyer working in the city, I specialised in cross-border fraud, white-collar crime, asset tracing. So I cut my teeth in the early 1990s on the what the time was the world's biggest banking collapse. It was a bank called BCCI based in the Middle East. Uh, and I acted for the auditors of BCCI and did a bunch of criminal trials and lots of civil cases. That was pretty much my practice for 15 years. And then I flipped my career halfway through. Uh, in the early noughties, I helped to write the English court rules on how we deal with electronic evidence. I'd always been interested in technology. And so I flipped to becoming a technology consultant. Very often, initially, actually helping lawyers to comply with the rules that I'd helped to draft, which is a pretty good business model. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I knew, I knew I knew what I meant. Um, uh, uh, and so then that evolved, and I, I said more broadly in legal compliance technology and then sort of running sales teams and then ending my time as a sort of chief innovation officer. Uh, I was in a one of the big four auditing and consulting practices, EY. I was a partner there, and, and at the end of my career doing the innovation, I was looking after teams of people and trying to help them with how they adopt um, and embrace new technology, blockchain, AI, that kind of stuff to deliver new services to clients. Uh, and then about uh, four or five years ago, I uh, decided I wanted to have a sort of slightly different change in my life. Uh, hit 50 and wanted to have a different uh, phase of my life where I do a bunch of different things. So I have a portfolio career now. I have a range of different things. Really, with a bit of a, uh, uh, everything has a an angle of either something around innovation uh, or inclusion or sport. Um, so I still keep a hand in in the law. I'm on the board of the Serious Fraud Office. Uh, I'm on the board of a law firm. Um, I have some technology. I chair a space technology company that is at the heart of the UK space tech industry. is an innovation incubator trying to create a £40 billion economy in the UK UK space sector. Uh, we're part of that infrastructure working with Innovate UK. And then my sort of sport portfolio breaks into three. I'm on um, 
uh, a, a trustee of Greater Sport, which aims to get 2 million people moving in the city of Manchester. It's one of the local active partnerships. I'm on the board of the Lawn Tennis Association, which is the governing body for British tennis. And so as part of that, I'm on the Risk and Finance Committee for Wimbledon. So I'll get to, Kieran would be very happy. I'll get to run run my eyes over the numbers, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure you would find very, very exciting to see the cost of strawberries. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I'm the chair of I'm the chair of Kick It Out, which obviously is football's leading anti-discrimination and inclusion charity. And, and so I kind of got into this. How did I get into Kick It Out? I'd always been doing side hustles all through my life, whether that was as a lawyer acting pro bono for prisoners on death row in Trinidad and doing cases there, right the way through to when I was a partner in in the sort of big four accounting firm, I ran a lot of our race equality initiatives, and we were we were pretty good at that. We, when I joined, I think I was the tenth or eleventh non-white partner out of five hundred. By the time I left, it was 10% of our partnership with a target of 20% and a specific target of 5% for black partners. And they were really leading the way. And really, it was off the back of that accidental circumstance, off the back of that, uh, we, we were I was leading our involvement in the Park Review on ethnicity on UK board. So this was a government-backed review uh, looking at the FTSE 100, FTSE 250. At the, uh, and we set targets in 2016 that all the FTSE 100 should have at least one British-born director of colour by 2021. And I think 99 of them out of 100 did. Uh, and then off the back of that, I was selected by the Premier League in its first round of equality standard panellists working with Garth Crooks. So um, that was kind of the, the route. And when I got to sort of 2019 and I was uh, looking for other things to do, Actually, someone from Kick It Out approached me, said the chair had stood down after 24, 25 years, looking for a new chair, would I apply? So I thought, well, that sounds really interesting and in my wheelhouse, so I'll, I'll have a crack at it. And in terms of which football team do I support, you know, as you know, I, you, you, both your teams have, have wandered over to collect three <laughs> points at Old Trafford this season. Uh, <laughs> we're very, very welcoming hosts. So, yeah, I'm a, as, as is traditional for someone born and brought up in Wolverhampton, <laughs> I'm a Man United fan. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I have to say, Sanjay, that is the most comprehensive answer to the f- question number one we've ever had. I can't tell you the amount... Uh, <laughs> but seriously, it's, it's such a... Pl- I can't tell you the amount of times I will ask somebody that question... And they'll say, "Well, I just drifted about a bit, and then Daddy gave me the money to buy a football to buy a football <laughs> club, and here we are, basically." And also, I'm going to be checking my notes later on this evening, and I'm going to I'm going to be thinking, "Why have I written down cost of strawberries?" And before we talk about the finances of of Kick It Out, Sanjay, which is what we want to to concentrate on, there, there are one or two general questions I think we need to to talk about um, Kick It Out. Kick It Out celebrates its 30th anniversary this year, but I wonder if celebrate is the right word, given how much work there's still to do. Yeah, I think it's marking the anniversary. Um, uh, and, and it's a, it's a, it's, I suppose it's a moment, a right moment to pause, to reflect and to refresh, really. That's the it, milestones are, are important for that. There is a degree of celebration. The celebration is actually we, there have been successes and achievements over the, the last 30 years, which and we did some some research. Uh, and it's always difficult to, to point to specific changes when what you're trying to do is to change the culture of a game. And culture changes very, very slowly. And, and I, I suppose I'll tell you personally, you know, my first 20 years of watching football, I would hear racist, mass racist chants at every single match. 
every single match there would be mass racist chants. I won't say what they were, but there are some well-known ones that were, were there all the time. And now I look back and I think, when was the last time I heard those? It was the mid-90s probably. And uh, and actually so it would be incredibly unusual to hear the particular chants that I'm thinking of. And that's something we should celebrate because it also is our cause for optimism that we can see the culture of the game has changed. And when I started watching football, you could count the number of black players on the fingers of two hands. And you go back to that amazing game in you know, Christmas 1978 when West Brom beat Man United 5-3 at Old Trafford. And actually, there's a bit in that. There's a bit in there where Gerald Sinstat actually talks Doing, about yeah. the booing yeah. of the black yeah. players. And it's just just up to to I think Cyril Regis scoring a goal, uh, and and that was important because it was the first time I'd ever heard a commentator call it out. And what was also important was it was snowing, and of course at the time it's ridiculous to say this now, but at the time people said, "Well, black players can't play in the snow. They can't play in the cold. They can't play in certain positions. And, you know, they they can't play in the intelligent positions on the pitch." That's not the kind of conversation we're having now. If forty fifty years later. So there are, you know, and, and now we're talking about thirty-four to forty percent of players in the Premier League or the EFL uh, are black or black heritage. So we we can celebrate those enormous changes, but there's still plenty more to do. And if I think about, you know, I think about three rooms really. I think about the boardroom, the boot room, and the dressing room. And there are still changes, and there are still stubborn inequalities in each of those areas that we need to address. And in terms of the culture of the game, yes, we don't hear mass racist chanting in English football as we did in the 1970s. We do hear mass homophobic chanting in English football. We do hear misogynistic chanting. And those are the cultures that we need to change. And they will change from the terraces themselves. It will be the fans that will do it. The fans are not our, the fans are not the problem. The fans are the answer, right? They're because the vast majority of fans in my experience are more like you two and you two are really part of the answer because it's one thing me saying pipe down but when a middle-aged white guy says pipe down to someone saying something it has a completely different impact so how we turn people like you from from bystanders into activists not that you're bystanders i'm sure you would you would call things out that's part of how we redouble our efforts so yeah 30 years we mark the achievements that have been uh over those 30 years but we're really really clear on and things still need to change and we're focused on the things that need to change i remember making a film with cyril regis um 10 15 years ago at west brom um uh, and it took us all day to record because he was doing a book signing and the queue was around about and it was west brom fans uh fans of, you know, Coventry fans of all West Midlands clubs were turning up to talk to Cyril Reese, have their book signed. And I would say 90% of the people, they were my sort of generation, our generation, 90% of the people, white, you know, white blokes, stereotypical white blokes, a lot of them were kids, 90% of them apologised to him uh, for, 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 for booing him, for, for thinking that when he joined their club, he wouldn't be any good. And he took it in remarkable grace. And I said to him afterwards, How did this, at not one stage did you ever get angry with any of those people? And he said, well, they're apologising. They're, they're acknowledging that that I did something to change their attitudes. And I was I was rather moved by that because I think my response would have been to hit them around the face with a book. But, but it was 
it was a remarkable thing to see. You, you mentioned the fact that the nature of chanting has changed. And I, I know recently you, you seem to be ever more concerned about social media. I, I presume you think that now is the biggest vehicle for personal racial, sexual, gender-based abuse, etc. So how do we challenge that? It's the primary vector of abuse these days because it's so easy. It has this sort of the disintermediation between the user and the and you know the and their keyboard and the distance from the impact that they have on the person, the victim, means that they become disinhibited and they say what they want. They say things online. Keyboard warriors say things online that they would never say to someone's face, um, and it's just the sheer volume of uh, abuse um some of it which obviously crosses a line into being illegal but some of it which just doesn't it's just the culture of abuse um sometimes people just being criticized for their performance not being criticized for their identity for their color or their 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 sexual um orientation or their gender um so what we've been working for the last four years with the both parties and across both houses uh, around the online safety bill, and we've really been leading on behalf of football. The 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 bill is now passed. We have an online safety act. Uh, it is coming into force gradually over the next eighteen months. I was just having a conversation yesterday with uh, the government department that's overseeing the bill, and with Ofcom, who's going to be the new regulator of uh, online safety. Uh, so, and and we may well have a, a role there as a super complainant to help to to keep an eye on things that are still happening online so that we can keep going back to Ofcom and saying, here's a set of conduct that isn't that you, that the platforms are not looking at. Um, so it, it will have an impact. There's, essentially, there's a sort of three-tier system. They call it a sort of triple shield. So um, the, the design of the act is if something's illegal in the real world, it should be illegal online. And if it's legal in the real world, it should be legal online. So it sort of brings that into, into parity. So it, 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 things like uh, uh, online hate, sort of hate crime, discriminatory abuse, the platforms will have to actively monitor if it's criminal to, to remove it from your timelines. And that's the first shield. The second shield is if, they ha- if each platform has terms and conditions which say they prohibit abuse, then the regulator will be monitoring that they are applying those rules consistently. So, of course, it's free for a platform to say, we want to be a no-holds-barred platform and actually anything goes on here as long as it's legal and you, as long as you sign up to that. Right? But if you say you've got terms and conditions, and most of them do, you know, Twitter and Facebook in particular and Instagram say that they have rules, but they apply them really inconsistently. So now they're going to be policed on applying those rules consistently. And then the third shield is a new thing, which is, the those big platforms are going to have to introduce what they call user enforcement, user empowerment tools. So we will be given tools that enable us to choose what kind of content we wish to see. So if we don't wish to see discriminatory abuse that's not illegal but is awful but lawful, we're able to click a box to say we don't want to see that and we don't want to see that in our feeds. And they're going to be, particularly the big platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, will be obliged to provide those tools. Now, the Act is going to gradually come into force over the next 18 months. What we've been saying to the platforms is you don't have to wait 18 months. You've got these tools. You've got the technology. You are contextual analytics organizations, and you use that to sell us stuff. 
We just want you to use the same technology to keep us safe. That's all we're asking. So don't wait. Uh, but we will be monitoring them and monitoring their compliance with the bill and monitoring conduct on the platforms to, so that this is going to be a constant battle. It's going to be a gradual evolution so we find the right sort of culture, I suppose, of, of, of online um, online engagement. And look, we're in the early days of this. You know, when the Gutenberg press was invented, we had exactly the same challenges, you know, but we've had 600 years of dealing with the written word and the printed word. We've had less than 20 years of dealing with online uh, 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 online platforms. So we're still in the infancy of how we create the ethics and the unwritten rules of the road of how we conduct ourselves on these platforms. Mm. My, my main problem with social media is the lack of peer pressure. Um Two seasons ago when we played Liverpool at Sellers Park and Mo Salah went down easily, shall we say, for a, to win a free kick for Liverpool. Um, and somebody near us made a, a, a very loud comment about his, about his religion. You know, and uh, to their credit, everyone around him, every Palace fan around him went, mate, that's not cool. You need to think about that. And to his credit, the, the bloke did think about it and he apologised to everyone around him. But you haven't got that. If that bloke was on, on on Twitter, there's no one looking over his shoulder to go, mate, that's not cool. Because half the time when you do confront people with that, they'll go, oh, mate, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, there's no excuse, but I was I was angry. I was annoyed about it. But when you confront people with their their actions, they do tend to go, oh, yeah, you might be right. Not all of them, sadly. But in social media, there is that, there is, that little voice is not there. It's just they've got a devil on both shoulders. They haven't got an angel going. Do you want to think about that before you... And that's why I find that the current TV campaign about online bullying so effective. When you see people like Son Min Hyung, you know the effect it has on him, because that's what that's what people need to see. They need to see the end result of what they think is a funny comment or a freedom of speech thing. And it's it's it'll, like you say, it's 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 taking too long for these social media platforms to take these things seriously. We'll be here all day if we keep talking about this, Sanjay. So we do want to talk about the the, the finances. Can you can you briefly explain to us how Kick It Out is is funded? Yeah, so uh, I joined four years ago, and at the time we were one hundred percent funded by the football governing body, so the FA, the Premier League, uh, the EFL, and the PFA, and they each had a seat on our board. Um, and so part of what I came to do was to do a governance review and a strategy review, and. Uh, Part of what I wanted to do and that we're now executing on uh, is to – one of our key strategies is, is around fitness, which is how do we create a sustainable charity with a high-performing team culture inside our organisation. Uh, and uh, we, feel, we felt that the place we wanted to occupy strategically was to act as a bridge between underrepresented or minority communities, who are the people we seek to represent – and the football bodies, and to convert that dialogue into a set of actionable solutions that we can actually adopt. So I think historically, maybe people had thought of us as the discrimination police and that, you know, we'll participate in the the auction of public outrage and people expecting us to bid first and highest in that, in that auction. And actually, that's it's right that we talk and we react to certain incidents, not every incident. But ultimately in life people are either critics or contributors and so we'd much rather be a contributor and be contributing solutions so in order for us to act as that bridge between the governing bodies and 
uh, and our beneficiaries, if you like, our underrepresented or minority communities, the pillars underlying that are trust. It's trust from the governing bodies and it's also trust from underrepresented or minority communities. And even though I can say, look, um, I'm... I know the fact that we were funded by the governing bodies has not affected a single word I've said in the last four years. So when Greg Clark said what he said, I think I was the very first person to say uh, on Radio 5 that afternoon he should be considering his position. And, of course, he was gone by sort of five o'clock. But it's also really important that uh, that people feel that. They feel that they can trust us. And actually, the perception is just as important as what I say and what, what, I, what I feel. So actually having their trust, we felt it was really important that we're not 100% funded by the, by the governing bodies. So this is a strategy to say we want to go away from being 100% funded. We're now about 50%. So we started off four years ago. We were probably about 800,000 turnover. Now with both our, our cash and our value in kind, because we have a sponsorship deal with Sky and with others, we're probably about two and a half million. Um, but about half of that comes from football and the other half comes from commercial partners. And where we would like to get to, we think football could double its contribution to us, but still be less than 20% of our funding. To give you a sense of the scale, the amount that football contributes to us is about 0.01% of the total annual revenue of English football to deal with the top five problem of English football. So we think there's plenty of scope to turn that 0.01 into 0.02. But we also think where we are in the world at the moment, there are lots of commercial organisations, not just Sky, there are others who want to work with organisations like this that are trying to drive a more inclusive society. And sport is a great way to create a more inclusive society and culture. I want to ask you a little bit about the partnership with Sky. And I, the reason I want to ask you this is because I hope it will underline what you've just said about people trusting you um, in terms of independence. Because Sky make no secret of the fact that they gave you £3 million, I think, in 2021. And they just recently announced a further £1 million package, uh, partly in cash and partly in benefits in kind. Is is that support admirable as it is? Is it contingent at all on any particular outcomes? Uh, and do they get involved in how you conduct campaigns, for example? Uh, it, so, so, to be honest, when when it first started, it, there were a, a number of outcomes that they were that they were interesting, but it was probably more probably they would probably say the same thing more about actually we want to make a contribution in this area and we'll kind of evolve it as we go along. It was more about, I think what they bought into was the vision of the kind of just, I'll just articulate to you in a little bit, a little bit more around the kind of programs we wanted to deliver and try and work on it together with the, with the extension last year, it's much more now around, and this will be where we'll be looking with future partnerships is what specific programs can we get involved in? What they've really helped us with is I suppose this to, increase people's awareness of us and some of the issues we're, we're obviously tony our ceo and myself and others are on there quite regularly talking about issues and they've they've raised the profile of the organization and the issues and they're they're really committed and engaged in it um there haven't been there's been nothing in what they required of us that's constrained us what they have done is give us resources and the ability to be able to to deliver more really and i think where we're going to be focused much more is 
what are the very 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 specific things we could be doing like for instance the um the 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 MBA program that we do with Liverpool, we sponsor some some undergraduates, which Kieran's given us the thumbs up for now, um, as an example of something very very specific that we do. Uh, I think we're doing a raise your game program with them. Raise your game is one of our, our, our talent programs where we try to get young people from outside the industry to work in from underrepresented minority communities who want to work in football to to give them access and we create sort of mentoring opportunities. So I think the where Sky are is where we'd also see the opportunity for other um, uh, uh, partners, which is around our three key external pillars of our strategy, which are around voice, skills and talent and the programmes that we deliver under each of those. And would you like to partner on particular programmes? Because I think that's going to be the way that we will expand and grow our impact. I'll, I'll just bring Kieran in there quickly because, um, unfortunately, our listeners can't see Kieran put his thumb up. Um, but fortunately, they can't see his Motorhead T-shirt as well, which is an unusual, <laughs> an unusual choice for Kieran. I have to say, Kieran, you clearly approve of that um, the Liverpool funding, the project that Sanjay talked about there. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, we're in our second or third year now. Um, the students are fantastic, and I think giving people the opportunity to upskill because there is underrepresentation. In, in certain aspects of, of football, as, as Sanjay was saying, is great. Uh, but uh, we we actually, myself and Kevin, we actually recorded uh, on request from one of the Kick It Out students uh, part of her contribution. Her, she was doing a video presentation on analysis of, of a club. Um, and I think it shows the innovation that, that some of these, these uh, young people have. And it's absolutely fantastic that they're getting the opportunity because – you know, as, as Sanjay will know, the, the cost of the course is is prohibitive for many, and and I think it's uh, yeah, opening access is absolutely fantastic. Uh, uh, that that kick it out student wrote a very sassy script in which she both managed to celebrate us and take the piss out of two <laughs> old men at the same time, which I th- <laughs> which I thought was very good work. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insights Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Sanjay, in, in, an, in an ideal world, would you prefer to be completely independently funded? And is that ideal world ever possible? You know, I'll go back to the start. We're 0.01% of, that's what football contributes to us, 0.01% of its total annual revenue to deal with the top five challenge of the game. I think this is the game's problem and it shouldn't be completely subcontracted out. So they should be contributing. So I want them to be contributing. So I'd never want it to be 100% that we don't get any funding from elsewhere. But what is really important is that the balance has to be right. And so I, I think it should be less than 20%. And more importantly, it's the say that they, you know, the other things that we did was change the governance so that they have less say on our board. 
So we persuaded them that actually all four of them should jump off the board. So they now have just one representative who cannot be a current employee of any of them. We asked for that to be a footballer and we had a short list and I wanted it to be someone who was on the player pathway from the player to executive schemes, either through the Premier League or the PFA, which is how we ended up with Wes Morgan on our board. I know Wes and he's, he's a, he was my number one target, really. He was a, a really great guy and uh, we think that will make a big difference. It's really important to have people like that who are on the board to help give us that recent experience of the of the of the dressing room but also um uh, we're doing our bit of actually giving someone an opportunity to have that board career that that's what they want and actually we want to want that maybe to be a rotating thing that once Wes goes and he goes off on to bigger and better things we have another player that takes their place uh, so it's also about the governance and then we have three other new trustees that have joined us all aligned to the strategy you know want to former commercial director from a, a Premier League football club, helping us build our commercial strategy. Someone from WPP is the global head of AI and data, help us with our data and technology strategy. And then Dan Jones, who, who you know, Kieran will know and others know who, who created Deloitte's global sports practice. So really well networked in the industry. Um, so it's really about having that, you know, the, the skills around the board table and the variety of skills around the board table that are aligned to our strategy. That's what's going to drive us even more independent um, uh, in terms of being less financially reliant on the on the governing bodies. That's incredibly important. I need, I think, so I think the short answer is they need to contribute, but we can't be completely dependent on them. It, 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 as an outsider, Sanjay, and of course, part of the reason our pod works is because I generally struggle to understand finance. But what I don't understand on this issue is when you talk about the lack of money that's coming from football to, to, to help a top five problem. At clubs in particular, we've heard clubs, we've spoken to, to people at clubs, and when you talk about environmental sustainability or disabled access, they will quite often say, we'd love to, but it's expensive. You know, it's, we, we, even though they're Premier League clubs, and you say, come on now, you know, you, you can afford wheelchair access, you can afford environmental friendly uh, pitch facilities and so on and so forth. But when it comes to increasing diversity, that doesn't cost a club anything, as far as I can see. I, I can't see that there's any financial downside or there's any outlay in cost for a football club to increase their diversity or to change their practices. So they can't use that as an excuse, can they? They, they can't really. There is enough money there. And actually, it's more about, um, you know, particularly in, in terms of the representation across the workforce, it, it, it's... Um, having to change your practices. And I think one thing coming from outside and coming from sort of big business, and I worked across lots of heavily regulated sectors, and I'm sure we'll get into regulation at some point. Um, uh, the practices that you see in football, are, you know, it's often, it makes me laugh when football sort of thinks of itself as like big business. It's not, it's more like big politics, right? It's is, it is far more resembles big politics than big business. The, the, the basic HR practices are just not there in football or sports. Basic governance is, is often just not there in football or sports in the way that it is coming from, you know, other organisations in big industries. And so I think what we don't, what we see is because there's a huge willingness and an appetite, uh, but, but what we don't necessarily have is the competence or knowledge 
So I think where they're at is they're willing, but there may be to some degree there's unconscious incompetence. Uh, and maybe that's some of that is starting to turn into actually we're consciously incompetent. We know that we're not quite good enough. How do we get better? And so part of what we're pushing is, you know, these things like how do you have mandatory transparency reporting and how do you use things like the regulator to help you to drive that transparency reporting and setting targets and all that kind of stuff, the kind of stuff that works in other industries and you need to translate it to the environment of football. You can't just take something lock, stock and barrel and plant it in. So, you know, we tried the Rooney rule in, in NFL. You can't just transport that. You tried it in the EFL in the UK. It doesn't work here because we don't have the same we don't have the same employment laws and we don't have the same employment practices. So you can't just lazily take something from somewhere else and just assume it's going to work here, even if it did work there, because there's arguments that it didn't even work in the US. But there's a this is part of the danger is people get frightened and so what they do is they reach for the thing that looks most like a solution that's shiny and new and go let's all do that and then when it fails it actually makes it worse for you because people go well we've tried that before and it didn't work but did you do it strategically did you actually think about what you were doing and how that works and what your theory of change is this is part of the challenge in football we don't have time to think about things or people don't take the time to think about things and we react. Football is very, very reactive. You know, we tend to react sort of um, either negative PR, money, or celebrity. Those are the three things that football reacts to. We we spoke on, on a Palace podcast. I do. We spoke to Troy Townsend, um, who was very, very. I've just fascinated. But he he said he used a particular expression when it comes to diversity, especially for Premier League clubs. He said they talk a good fight. They they talk yeah. a good fight, but when when push comes to shove, like say so they're they're all very well meaning and they all have these public as as equal they like to call them outward facing policies, but you still see no actual changes um, on the bench. You still see no black coaches or no black directors or no uh, black chairman. But that that mention of of transparency and data it brings us on in particular to the the FA's football leadership diversity code which is something we have spoken about on the pod but before we discuss that the way they use data and the way they hide data it 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 strikes me that kick it out have an even more difficult task now than they had 30 years ago because the growth of women's football heightened awareness of gay transsexual issues etc uh, are just giving haters more opportunity and more people to hate, aren't they? So whereas when you started 30 years ago, you had quite a narrow, albeit very, very important um, range of subjects to, to deal with, you've now got it. That's huge. The way culture and society have changed have given you a, a great deal more problems, haven't they? So, so, so yeah, yes and no. Yeah, yes, it gives us more problems in terms of the variety of issues in, in, in the way in which you you rightly explain. Um, but in a way, it boils down to um, a bit of po- polarisation in society and populism growing in society and politics and culture, not just here but around the world. And, and it, it, it almost in some ways makes it easier because in the old days when people formed opinions and political opinions – they would maybe look at the facts, look at what they look at what they perceive to be the facts, and form an opinion. And and now it's much more tribal, 
uh, and actually, if you, if you, if 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 I know what someone believes on one hot button topic, I can pretty much predict with ninety percent degree of accuracy what they're going to think on a whole bunch of other topics, <laughs> because well, it's, it's this is what the tribe thinks, therefore I think that, irrespective of the evidence. So, but when you know that that's the challenge, in a way you can kind of deal with it because it's just the same challenge playing out in lots of different arenas, whether it's in race or trans or gender or whatever in the recent things that we've seen with some around 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 participation of women in in media in football that those they, they're all just manifestations of the same challenge but but also when you're trying to drive inclusion uh, as which is the answer and creating a sense of belonging actually in some ways it makes it easier because you you just look at what's there so again i'll go back to boardroom boot room dressing room in the boardrooms they're predominantly white and male and so is very little ethnic diversity, very little gender diversity. Boot rooms, 40% black players, which is primarily the source of future future coaching talent, yet 4%, 4% of coaches are black. Something's going on there. We need to ask questions. We need to find solutions. Um, uh, the playing side in the, in the dressing room, in the women's game, very sort of become a white middle-class sport. How do you get more black or Asian kids into teams? Because South Asian participation, as an example, 15% of the women's game uh, at grassroots football, not really making it through into elite. Um, in the men's game, actually, we think of the men's game as being inclusive. But South Asians, again, with the single largest ethnic minority in the UK, 12% participation at grassroots level, men and boys. That's traditionally the place where you would look to be the pathway into the elite game 0.5 percent of professional players are south asian and one percent of the academy again there's something going on there that we need to ask questions about this is where data becomes really 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 important so yeah the noise is the noise and it makes it more difficult but the noise goes off in predictable directions. Like I say, we've, I know what you believe on one thing. I know probably what you're going to believe on all these others. We have to kind of ignore some of that noise and carry on doing the things that make it really important for us because it's really easy to be distracted by all of that noise and respond to all of the noise. So we don't respond to all of the noise. You mentioned data and reading some of your recent interviews. I know you're concerned in particular about the transparency around diversity data and for Kieran, transparency is something Kieran's always um, hammered me over the head with for four years, basically, how important it is. But what what are your concerns in particular about the transparency around diversity data? So I was I was involved in the Football Leadership Diversity Code, and we were you know with 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 Paul Barber from Brighton and Steve Parish from from Palace, and lots and lots of other people around football. Uh, and one of the challenges that we have was look unless. Transparency is, disinf- is is the best disinfectant. If, if if you, it's almost like being in the headmaster study. If you know that you have to report something at the end of the year, funnily enough, what happens is a bit like doing your homework. In the last three weeks before you got to hand your homework in, people start doing the stuff that they need to do because they get embarrassed about what's going to go into their into, into their public transparency reporting, and and so. This is the one of the best ways across lots of other industries. Other industries have done it as well, where they use transparency reporting around their workforce to drive change. When we were working on the football leadership diversity, I don't remember asking people at the time, saying, look, they were focused on 
um, let's do transparency reporting and set targets around our new recruits. Well, you know, you're an organisation that might be 600 people. You might only recruit five people in a year. If you're only going to report on the five people rather than the 600, then I've got no clue what your entire workforce looks like or whether this is good or bad. Um, you could hire five black people, but the other 595 that you already employ are, are, are white middle-aged men. Actually, if we want to drive the change across football, we need to see transparency of your entire workforce. And I said this at the time, and the, the problem is, because of the governance of football, there is no way that the FA could mandate to say, here's the rule and you must do this. They need the consent of the clubs. And of course, what happens is the clubs were not prepared to consent to that whole workforce transparency. They would only consent to doing the new recruits. Why are clubs reluctant to consent to agree to some of this stuff? Well, they're always fearful that there's going to be a league table. And by definition, in a league table, half are in the bottom half. But three quarters fear they're going to be in the bottom half. And if you need three quarter majority, you're never going to get a three quarter majority to change the rules because three quarters actually fear they're going to be in the bottom half of a league table. And so this is where you get into what I call individually smart, collectively stupid. So individually, every organisation does all the right things. They make all the right noises. But when they hide behind the collective of the Premier League or the EFL, there's no such thing as the Premier League or the EFL. It's the clubs. It's the clubs who actually hide behind that collective to say, yeah, well, we've not voted in favour of this. And actually, that's why you don't get change, right? Ultimately, the big change is going to come from the clubs. But ultimately, we need to hold them to account. And one of the ways we can do that is saying, just tell us what your workforce looks like. Well, how many people have you got from these different identities, different, tra- you know, how many black people, South Asian people, how many women, sexual orientation? Just give us the data. Tell us what it looks like and publish it. Yeah, in, in in other words, you could get in the top half of the league table by doing the right thing rather than worrying about telling you whether or not they're doing it. All they have to do is do the right thing and then and then they're fine. Exactly, and there's also a role for us to play, right? Because what we if we we would like to encourage them to be transparent, but also at the same time, what we don't want to be doing is beating people over the head all the time when they're in the bottom half. Or it's actually about what are you going to then do with that data, and what's your plan, and how are you going to be changing things? Because it's the change that we want. The transparency reporting is a stepping stone to getting to change, but it's a vital stepping stone in the end. Then how we understand. So what are you doing? How are you going to change things? I'll give you an example. When I was a, when I was on the Premier League Equality standard panel we had a club i think it was hull city and they took they looked at the demographics around their ground and the postal codes and the people coming into the ground and they had a particular postal district where they weren't having people coming into the stadium and there was a large polish immigrant community there and they sent camel glick out into the community and suddenly they had a lot more fans coming into the ground i mean that to me was a brilliant example of how it's done really well I wasn't going to ask you this, Sanjay, because I thought it was outside the remit of our our interview, and also because we could be here all day, literally. But um, yeah. on that subject to demo- <laughs> that subject to demographics, I was at um, a Palace Foundation meeting recently, and we were shown some some figures that the Premier League had, had issued of the demographics of the of the crowd compared to the demographics of the local area. And they don't match up in any way, shape, or form. In, in I, I think, off the top of my head, in, in, in Croydon, it's forty nine percent non-white population. In Sellers Park, 
it's about 1.5%. And those figures are the same for, for women and for people who, who took part and identified as good. Is that, is that something that worries you? Is that something? Because it seems to me that the clubs, yeah, the, the clubs will do the right thing. Of course they will. They, or they will say they're doing the right thing when it comes to, to players. Board, I don't know which, I don't know whether that's Ali making that noise or one of the dogs in the background. Science, Someone's my, doing. A, is it? Is it your dog Willow doing, doing the washing wash, up? I think. I think my <laughs> wife has come down to do the washing up. Uh, <laughs> but but well, I'd say whereas clubs will do or say they want to do the right thing when it comes to representation at board level and as you say in the boot room and the, the dressing room, it strikes me that as long as a Premier League club is is selling out every week, they're not particularly fussed about the people they're selling the tickets to. Is is that something that does worry you? A, a, a little, but it's also an enormous opportunity because you have to remember that it, it, it's probably only the Premier League clubs that do sell out regularly every single week. Everything below that, there's 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 empty seats in stadia. And also, even in the Premier League, when you look beyond the gender and ethnicity demographics, if you look at the age demographics, pretty much every football club is facing this massive cliff of season ticket holders all in their 40s, 50s, all in their 50s and plus, right? Now, that is a challenge because younger people... When we were kids, we probably all wanted to have a season ticket. That was our summit of our ambitions. That was all I wanted when I was a kid. That's not what kids want today. They don't necessarily want a season ticket. And maybe they want shared season tickets. So this is an enormous opportunity with how do you engage young people for the future sustainability of football to get actually inside grounds? Because all of the the broadcast media, all of those other... the. Uh, 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 that income in football is all actually dependent on full houses inside grounds because it's the ground and the atmosphere. We saw that during lockdown. It's the full houses inside grounds that make English football unique and different and so saleable across the world. So actually there's an enormous opportunity here in how do you manage those demographics and that transition to a younger group of people coming into coming into grounds. Well, also increasingly, and I have to say this is purely anecdotal evidence, but but I, I've found and my friends find that younger people are more interested now in going to non-league football or going to women's football because a because of the economics because they simply can't afford Premier League tickets, and b because non-league football, women's football, is a, a safer, nicer environment to go to as a young person. And I, I know so many ex-Palace fans who are now taking their kids to to Sutton or Carl Shorten or to see Palace women's team rather than the Palace men's team because it's just more fun and it's cheaper and I think I think that problem I think Premier League teams are kind of sleepwalking as you say into a you know Palace are building a new stand which will probably be open in well hopefully in my lifetime but they're going to have trouble filling it they really are going to have trouble filling it final question Sanjay um I don't think there's a pod we haven't done for the last three years that hasn't mentioned the words independent regulator should should diversity be part of the regulator's remit? Uh, yes, but it depends where and how. Um, so we we have been, uh, again, providing evidence to uh, DCMS uh, over the last three years during the course of the, the consultation. I think we've given two or three bits of written evidence, some oral evidence, and I was speaking to them last, last week as well. Um, so... Look, we have, I came from a regulator background. We have 96 regulators in this country. I don't think, you know, normally regulators exist to prevent harm. And so the first bit that you have to do in the regulatory objective is define the objective. So you define which harm you're seeking to prevent and manage. And that's what the regulator is doing here. It's primarily about financial sustainability. 
And so our position was always, look, we, in a way, the, the view of Kick It Out was we're neutral on whether there should or shouldn't be a regulator. But if you are going to have a regulator, then it should be a bog standard regulator like every other regulator. Its power should not be unnaturally fettered, fettered or constrained. And it should have the same powers to deal with equality, diversity and inclusion that other regulators have. It should be a bog standard regulator in that sense. So we we understand that the regulatory objective and so therefore on the face of the bill should be focused on financial sustainability because this comes out of the collapse of Berry and incidents like that. And we've already, you know, been following your podcast for the last few years and we hear so many of the stories of Reading and Southend and various other clubs that are going through through challenges. That's primarily the harm that we're trying to focus on here. <clears throat> but the route in as with other regulators, when other regulators look at equality, diversity and inclusion, the way they look at it is because this is a matter of good governance. So what what is in order for you to deliver financial sustainability, a requirement is that the club should be well governed. Well, what does well governed mean? What does good governance look like? Therefore, there's going to be this code for football governance. So that's where we think that's where we've been arguing, saying that's where equality and inclusion should come in. You should be looking at clubs, equality and inclusion practices, including their transparency reporting in whether they are well governed, because that's what every other organiser, every other regulator does. That's what the Financial Conduct Authority does. It's what the Financial Reporting Council does. They look at this as a matter of good governance. So we're working with the University of York. We're doing some research. We're doing some desktop research. We're looking at all the codes for football and sports governance in the UK. And we're also looking at other regulators and saying, based on all of that, what should go into the code for football governance? We don't think that code for football governance will be drafted for another six months or so. But we will be creating what we think from an equality, diversity, inclusion perspective should go into the code. But we're telling you as a matter of as a baseline, mandatory transparency reporting should be in there, irrespective of what you choose to do as the clubs or the FA or the Premier League or the EFL, the regulator should have some oversight of that. Mm. Finally, Sanjay, we always like to finish on an optimistic note. And we're marking, as you say, your your 30th anniversary. Do you think, and I'm, I'm praying that this is going to be an optimistic note, by the way, <laughs> do you think in 30 <laughs> years' time, football will have evolved enough, society will have evolved enough that Kick It Out will no longer need to exist? Uh, I would love to think that Kick It Out would no longer need to exist. I think the, uh, in terms of optimism, pessimism, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great fan of the Marxist Italian philosopher Gramsci, who said that you should be pessimistic of mind and optimistic of heart, right? And and our that really is the mindset I'm going, which is we should be pessimistic in terms of being deeply analytical about the problems and then identifying solutions. But we have to be optimistic and believe that change is possible because nobody follows Eeyore into battle. You have to be a bit tiggerish. You have to be optimistic. People follow optimists. They don't follow pessimists. So I am optimistic. Why am I optimistic? Look at the changes we talked about that we've seen over the last 30, 40 years in my lifetime, the number of black players playing in the game, the number of South Asian fans. I would love to see more South Asians on the pitch, but, you know, I see so many more people who look like me watching football, and it's not just my family and relatives. Right? There yeah, are, yeah. They're, they're, we're everywhere, right? Okay, we, we need to be on the pitch. So, I would love to tell you in thirty years' time, we will be, we won't 
need to exist. But I suspect society will have moved on. No one will. If you'd asked me 30 years ago, I wouldn't have believed we lived in the society we do now. I suspect we'll be fighting slightly different battles, but I would hope that we will see the end of misogynistic chanting. I'd hope we'd see the end of homophobic chanting in the way that we have seen the end of mass racist chanting. I'd hope that our boardrooms are more representative and our uh, dressing rooms are more representative and our uh, and our boot rooms are more representative of the people who love the game. And we are starting to turn that intent into action. So I am optimistic, actually, because we've seen change. We've done change. We know what it looks like. So why can't we do it again? Brilliant. On on that note, Sanjay, I'd like to thank you so much for your time this morning and for your, your insight. And uh, if there's anything we can do at The Price of Football to help promote your cause, then we will do so gladly. So thank you very much. Thanks, Kevin. Kieran, first of all, hats off to Sanjay for being the first guest we've ever had to quote Gramsci. Um, we've, <laughs> I, I've, I've long argued that we should have more Italian Marxist philosophy on this show. I love that quote, no one follows Eeyore into battle. That's a, that's a cracking <laughs> quote. But I, I, I was interested in particular two things that, that Sanjay said. First of all, on the regulator, he's saying that, that Kick It Out was independent on the regulator. Or the, or the, I like to think I'm reading between the lines and apologies to him if I'm not, that he personally seemed to be in favour. But it's very interesting talking about the, the the regulator's remit and whether diversity should be a part of that. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the remit is quite narrow that we have seen coming out of the... Uh, the government proposals, but you know, diversity should be embedded into all industries. And you know, I I have debates, why well, not debates, arguments on social media with people that take an alternate view. Um, but all I can say is is working in education, and you work in entertainment, that the more backgrounds that you have the more talent you get access to and, and the better a performance you see. And, and we see in so many industries that those that have got a, a, a positive view towards um, diversity and inclusion actually have happier workforces and they tend to be more successful. So this isn't being woke. It's not going, it's not being anti-white middle class or white working class because that's our background at the end of the day. We're not trying to put ourselves out of a job. Um, having experience of different people and just welcoming everybody, it works because it makes you better because you're dealing with better people. I mean, recent studies have shown that the more women you have on your board of directors, the more successful and productive your company tends to be, and that's not a coincidence. Slightly disconcerting, Kieran, to hear him say, to hear Sanjay talk about, the reluctance of every single Premier League club to share their data on diversity, because that's one of the many things that you and Sanjay obviously agree with, is the need for transparency, especially on issues like this, because unless you know the extent of the problem, you can't deal with the problem. Yeah, and I think, as Sanjay was saying, it's not a case of clubs deliberately trying to be awkward. They, they fear the data being used against them. And you know, we're all guilty of, of unconscious bias, and um, and, and, we, and you know, it, it's unconscious. So therefore, we don't know we're even doing it at the time. Um, but sometimes, actually, 
having a, a table of differences. There's two things. First of all, you can move the progression of the, you can look at the progression of the industry over a period of time to see whether there is positive or whether it's plateauing or whether it's reversing. And then secondly, you can look at it on uh, on a club by club basis. And you know, if, I, if I was an executive at a club, I'd, I'd want that information just as part of, of my job of reflecting, am I doing the right things in respect of this club? And, and we say, well, well actually, you know, we should be in a slightly different position. And you, you, you spoke, uh, you know, with 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 issues at Palace that you know, in terms of why are we attracting such a relatively small, concentrated demographic in terms of the fan base? And you know, it, it's the same at Brighton. You know, Brighton's a very diverse city, but you know, that's not reflected there as well in in terms of the people I see going. And it's not that the clubs are deliberately trying to exclude people, but. There's got to be something behind it, and and if it and if, it, if something provokes the right questions, then once you've started to write the ask, ask the right questions, that can help you to come up with solutions. Mm. I once asked a, a Premier League referee whether he had a subconscious bias against the smaller clubs, and he went, "I wouldn't know, would I, if it was subconscious?" And I just thought to myself, "I've I've been zinged by Graham Pole <laughs> on a live on a TV show." I need to, I need to rethink my entire career and what I've done with my life. Thank you, as ever, to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod as well, that'd be very kind of you. Also gets you access to our chat community and our regular quizzes. Christmas is coming. Ultras, Christmas is coming. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And if you'd like to buy our book or one of our other books or get yourself a Price of Football t-shirt, you can find details on our website, priceoffootball.com. Bye, everybody. Bye. The Price of Football. I'm for the